The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. You're listening to the Irish Times Hello, I'm Hugh Linehan and you're very welcome to the latest edition of Inside Story, a podcast series from the Irish Times in which we talk to our journalists about the background to stories which they're working on for the print edition or on irishtimes.com. Today we are looking at what appears to be the very final act in one of the most tortuous, drawn out and controversial scandals in this country's history. Earlier this week, Justice John Aylmer directed the jury in the trial of former Anglo-Irish bank chairman Sean Fitzpatrick to acquit Fitzpatrick on all charges. But thankfully today... The trial is over. So, as you can appreciate, it's a wonderful day for me and my family. This brought to an end the longest criminal trial in the history of the state. But what, if anything, does this story tell us about how the state goes about investigating alleged financial wrongdoing and prosecuting white-collar crime? I'm joined by our legal affairs correspondent, Colm Keena, to discuss it. Maybe for the benefit of our listeners, it's such a long, complicated story. Maybe we should start with the simple facts. Who is Sean Fitzpatrick and what was Anglo-Irish Bank? Anglo-Irish Bank was this bank that drew that grew massively all through the the 1990s and into the into the noughties, uh, right through the, the old boom era, um, and was um, the chief executive was Sean Fitzpatrick for most of that period. In the latter years, he was the chairman uh, and um, of the bank, and he was chairman at the time, chairman of the bank right up till the end of 2008. By which time, um, we'd realised that. The country had made a terrible error that banking and property development was at the heart of it. Uh, Anglo basically was a, a bank that backed property. Uh, one of the signals for making you worried about a bank is when it's called, has a mono line of business. Another reason for being worried about a bank is when it grows quickly. Um, so the, when it's hugely profitable years after year after year after year, they're all alarm bells in, in the world of banking but um, Irish society never noticed this unfortunately so then the thing collapsed People will remember the bank guarantee in the in the autumn of uh, of, of 2008 um, but things got, went from bad to worse very quickly after that for Anglo-Irish Bank and there were revelations about some of its activities That's right and so everybody was terribly worried about Anglo-Irish Bank in the context of the banking crisis but in, in at the end December 2008 it was um, it was disclosed that Sean Fitzpatrick was resigning as chairman and that he'd been hiding loans he had from the bank and he did this by warehousing them um, so what that meant was that he had loans from the bank and at the year end he moved these loans to Irish Nationwide Billing Society and then after year end he he brought them back to the bank again. The reason he did so was there an obligation on the bank to the state what director's loans existed at the year end, the end of the financial year. Um, so he re- reduced the amount, but in fact he had very, very substantial mo- loans. So he was warehousing them and this was considered highly unethical and improper practice. And there was, you know, some suggestion that, that, that it might be illegal also, which led ultimately to the to the prosecution. Yeah, um, but, 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 also, there, but there was a long road between mm, between those, between yeah, those two also, things. All, well, also the... the the disclosure that he'd been warehousing his loans led to a massive loss of conf- confidence in the bank, um, which led to its nationalisation. The final cost of bailing out Anglo-Irish Bank has been put at €29 billion. Euro. 
The figure was announced this morning. And by so the this bank. is a very major stepping stone in in the road to the Troika bailout. You know. I, it, it's important, I think, to state as well that in the years that followed, there, this was not the only um, case or allegation of criminal wrongdoing against uh, against the bank and employees of the That's bank. That's right. That's right. Um, the investigation into this issue began the day the announcement was made um, by the Office of Director of Corporate Enforcement. There were other allegations then and uh, issues that arose, including the loans to to the family of Sean Quinn, the loans to the so-called Maple Ten to buy shares in the bank to shore up the bank, uh, and there were there were a couple of other more minor uh, issues along the way. And um, so the Office of Director of Corporate Enforcement and the Garda Bureau of Fraud Investigation found both found themselves heavily involved in complicated, alleged uh, white collar crime offences that were linked to the collapse of the Irish economy. And maybe for the benefit of our listeners and indeed me, you could you could tell me exactly what is the Office of the Director of Corporate Enforcement? What's its function? Uh, if there's an allegation, as in this instance, of possible criminal behaviour, why isn't that purely a matter for the guards? Yeah, um, well, back in 1997, when the McCracken Tribunal was investigating uh, um, uh, Charlie Howe, we, disco- we discovered there was the existence of these things called the Ansbacker deposits, which caused quite a, a controversy at the time. And it also emerged that there were about two and a half civil servants in the Department of Enterprise whose job it was to look after company law, matters to do with company law. And um, they had other duties as well. So in other words, it was a totally ignored area of Irish life. Um, so arising out of the, the Anglo or the Ansbacker con- controversy and so on, Mary Harney uh, established the Office of Director of Corporate Enforcement. And the idea was that, and, and Paul Appleby, his first head, was one of those two and a half people who'd been in the Department of Enterprise looking after things. So they tried to pay more attention to company law. There's a lot of really boring, small stuff, proper filing of accounts, what to do when a small company goes uh, bust or it goes into liquidation, what issues to do with director's loans when you're a small little company and so on. And they do loads and loads and loads of that day-to-day stuff. stuff. They have a, a, an, an office up in Parnell Square and they've been party to the transformation of compliance by com- by companies to company law. Um, they don't have much of a record in terms of uh, doing really, really, really big stuff. The only really big stuff they did would have been um, overseeing the Ansbacker inquiry. Does that mean that there are both a both a sort of regulatory authority and, when required, an investigative authority if if, if questions of wrongdoing? Yeah, they, they 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 make they 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 try to encourage and enforce a compliance with company law and also investigate um, you know matters that are brought to their attention. So, as we say, there were there were a number of different strands to the investigations mm-hmm. that went on into the activities of Anglo Irish Bank, particularly around, as you say, things like the the Maple Ten, uh, the 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 issuing of loans to to people to uh, to buy shares back yes. in Anglo Irish Bank, mm-hmm. and indeed there have been some convictions of some That's individuals right. in yes. relation to those over the years, um, but 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 not of Sean Fitzpatrick, um, but. This issue, which you mentioned a little earlier, of the warehousing of the loans, recurred again, uh, and ultimately a, a case was taken against John Fitzpatrick. On That's that. right. He, like I said, he was under investigation from the moment he resigned as chairman. There were a number of inquiries going on to, into a number of matters, and he ended up being being um, charged and brought before the court in relation to loans to to the Quinn family and the loans to the so-called Maple Ten. Now, in relation to the Quinn family loans. The judge directed that the evidence that had been presented in the court wasn't sufficient to justify the charges 
uh, being put to the jury. So he was let, he was let off on those ones. And um, in relation to the loans to the Maple 10, the jury found that he was innocent of those charges while finding that other people who were before the court in the same trial were not innocent. Mm. So, so th- there those th- th- that's that case. It's it's worth bearing in mind just to state, I suppose, because it's clearly part of all this, is that Sean Fitzpatrick was the most public face of the banking collapse Absolutely. and was a very, very high profile figure uh, with political connections, a very high profile figure in, in Irish society and Irish business. Absolutely, absolutely. So he, in a way, if you want to say that the banking uh, community was irresponsible and reckless and, and, and half destroyed the country, he is the face of that, yeah. I think. I think that's fair to say. Um, so um, then secondly, there was this issue of his warehousing, his loans was being investigated uh, at the same time. Um, and that led to charges against him. It led to a trial in 2015, which collapsed and uh, was resumed again late last year. But why did the trial collapse? It, it collapsed because when the, when the trial started, the uh, defence team went into legal argument. So that happens in the absence of the jury and it's not reported on. So they started querying how the investigation had, had been conducted by the Office of Director of Corporate Enforcement and in particular by a man called Kevin O'Connell who's a solicitor in that office and headed up this particular inquiry. And there's guards working in the Office of Director of Corporate Enforcement. Normally what you do when you're investigating a crime is a, a guard goes along and takes your witness statements from, from witnesses who have information relevant to the alleged crime. But in this case, Kevin O'Connell sort of took a lot of this duties onto himself, treated it essentially like a civil matter where you draft affidavits, solicitors discuss them, the, 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 the opponent then signs it at the end which of the day. Which would have been the kind of cases which he would have dealt with prior yes, to this. Yeah, he'd be more familiar with that sort of stuff. He'd never been involved in a serious criminal investigation before. And he started dealing with uh, the witnesses who were auditors with uh, Ernst and Young, who audited the Anglo books. He started dealing with two audit partners there through A&L Goodbody, who were solicitors for, for Ernst and Young, and discussing drafts, Paul Appleby, his boss, uh, being consulted all the time, sometimes actually writing bits, bits of, uh, you know, uh, lines that ended up in the people's witness statements and so on. So it was what's called, you know, uh, 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 statements by committee. And um, they weren't really the witnesses' work at all. They were, they were the work of A&L Goodbody, Mr. O'Connell, Paul Appleby and, and others. And, um, and, they're just totally improper way to go about a criminal inquiry, and they were they were the witnesses were being coached according to the judge. But anyway, this began to emerge. Uh, uh, the problems with the, how the whole process had been conducted began to emerge in the in the uh, legal argument in 2015. Mr. O'Connell gave evidence in the witness box over six days. Again, all of this unreported in the absence of the jury came under huge pressure within his own mind and in the trial that he'd made a complete hames of this, was worried that he was going to get shafted and felt that there were other people out there who, who should share the blame. For instance, the Director of Public, the Office of Directors of Public Prosecutions, his guard of colleagues and so on. He saw some memos that, to his mind, there were memos and emails which were not going to be disclosed to the trial and which he thought the effect of that would be to make him more exposed and protect other people. So he was really, really having his, a total so freak out. Sort of falling apart around he, him. His world was totally falling apart. He'd had uh, mental health problems himself before, uh, some of them associated with his work. And um, he went back to his office having... Uh, finished giving evidence and he found some documents that should have been disclosed to the uh, to the trial uh, and hadn't been. He informed the DPP of this. 
this added to his sense of crisis. Went back to his office and found a few more, shredded them, went home for the weekend, told people on Monday what he'd done and then sought more psychiatric help. So this led to the collapse of the 2015 trial. Not surprisingly. Not surprisingly. So by, the, by, the, by that stage then, we knew that this, this investigation had been handled totally incorrectly. We knew that one, the chief lead investigator had shredded documents and we knew there was lots of other problems. The DPP knew this, the Office of Director of Corporate Enforcement, but yet he was charged again, or he wasn't charged again. A new trial began last September. Which is where I start getting really astonished. Yeah, that was quite astonishing. That is quite astonishing. But in, and it, but a lot of the, the, the stuff that led to the ruling this week where the judge said this was a biased and partisan investigation and that the witnesses were coached and it was witness statements by committee and so on. A lot of that detail could or should have been uh, known to the DPP's office and, and the Garda colleagues uh, or the Garda authorities. Um, and no alarm bells. But the, the, the thing seems to have started to roll and was allowed to keep rolling. And that's one of the impressions that you emerge. So essentially, I mean, lo- looking at it as a complete layman from outside, you had this first trial which collapsed in confusion and, and embarrassment for the, yes. for the prosecuting authorities. for the state. And yeah. for the state. And a lot of those problems were still there and, uh, at the point at which it was decided to embark on a, on a second, on a second yes. prosecution. Mm. And indeed, so it, it did come to pass that very similar issues, the, the kind of ones you've just described yes. there, mm. about inappropriate ways of pursuing an investigation of this sort, um, uh, were what brought it down in the end. Absolutely. And the minute it started again, we went straight back into legal argument. It turned into one of the longest criminal trials. It is the longest criminal trial in the history of the state. Most of it done le- legal argument in the absence of the jury and more and more of these problems emerging. Right. You know. So... Sean Fitzpatrick walked free. Looked like a very happy man. I was looking yes. at the picture of him in the in in the paper. Um, there are a number of things I find astonishing about this, so, which I'd like to ask you about. Uh, one is I, I, the uh, Solidarity TD Richard Boyd Barrett is, is yeah. seeing conspiracy here. Um, he was speaking in the Dáil under privilege, it should be said, um, this week, mm. and he was suggesting that it's that it's all a fit up. Um, what do you make of that? Yeah, he said that, that the establishment contrived and conspired to ensure that Sean Fitzpatrick walked free. And I must say, having you know, spent some time watching what happened here, I say, to my mind, that couldn't be more wrong. It's an extraordinarily wrong statement. The opposite is the case. Uh, Sean Fitzpatrick resigned because he'd been warehousing his loans and, the, and this caused, contributed to the nationalisation of Irish Bank. But it wasn't a crime. That's the problem. Explain that to me. There was, you were obliged as a, as a bank director to declare the loans you had at the end of the year. He, he put in place a system with the assistance of people in the bank and so on that moved his loans out of the bank or reduced his loans. To and just to be clear, we mightn't think this was the highest ethical yeah. way to behave. Yeah, exactly. But it was not a crime. Exactly. But it wasn't a crime. You can only be convicted of a crime. And, and so when the authorities started to investigate this, I think it became evident that, you know, the straightforward layman's idea that this wearing of a loaf is wrong, a crime, convicted, you should go to jail, turned out to be an impossible thing to do because it wasn't a crime. But they found, uh, it gets very complicated, but one of the things I think is useful for by, way, by way of illustration is that the bank directors were, were supposed to declare what their loans were at year end. Now, if you're not a bank director, if you're director of a company, you have to declare what your loans were or the highest the highest extent of your loans during the year. Over the course of the full 12 yeah, months. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But the law is different for banks because banks issue loans. That's their business. So 
the, the wrong, in some instances, the wrong document was used. By Ernst Young. By Ernst Young and by Anglo. We don't actually know who whose fault this is because it was never investigated. But nominally, Sean Fitzpatrick said, my loans during the year were X. Okay, the, the amount that were, they were at year end. All right. It was just a mistake. Yeah. You know, it was a bungle mistake. But as the jury... Although technically he put his name to a form which said which X, he which he wasn't required yeah. to do. But, but technically yeah, he but signed it was, that, that. But form. it was only a problem if it was information that was required by the auditors. And it wasn't information by, by that was required by the auditors because they, are, they only required to know the loans at year end. But... The judge said that the point of view of the Office of Director of Corporate Enforcement, they thought they considered this to be fortuitous because it gave them an opportunity to build a case against them. And they chose not to ask questions which they thought might undermine the case again they were trying to build. So I know a lot of people maybe don't like Sean Fitzpatrick and, you know, don't like Irish Bank and don't like the Troika and don't like what happened to Ireland. And most of us, you know, would be in that bed. But everybody should be concerned if agency of the state are going out and trying to build a case against somebody. Just in case people don't know, guards are trained to go out and gather evidence and they're obliged to gather evidence that speaks to your innocence as well as your, your guilt. And the reason for that is obvious. Nobody wants authorities going around putting people in jail for, 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 for crimes that weren't committed. And we all have an interest in that happening. What's really worrying about, the, about what happened was it was a very, very high prof- profile uh, a case involving somebody who's, you know, it's a politically charged issue, Sean Fitzpatrick. How much political pressure do you think would have been on the, the authorities? Well, to they had me, there were meetings where, where the guards and the Office of Director of Corporate Enforcement met with senior senior figures, including, uh, you know, Secretary General and so on. And they were told, we fully, fully back the independence of your agencies and we're not for a minute trying to impinge on the independence of your agencies and we want you to do the job and um, you can have more resources if you want them and they didn't look for more resources um, but why, why not? I guess there was a, well according to Kevin O'Connell in the witness box there was kind of a line they'd gotten more resources the Director of Corporate Enforcement's office and they felt okay well that's it now we're going to work with these so you hold that line until you decide otherwise so the line was, we can do this. There was a spirit around the time. The country was under terrible pre- pressure. Public service under terrible pressure. We're going to do more for less. We're all going to put a shoulder to the wheel and so on. There was that kind of ethos around. That's what he says, anyhow. So, But, 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 but d- people d- would have d- been d- conscious that this yeah. is a big well, issue exactly. with the yeah, highest level just say, of government. This is, this is an allegation of, of a crime which mm. has turned out not to have taken place, yes. which occurred within the context of the biggest financial collapse with with further allegations surrounding it of malfeasance Absolutely. and and, and yeah. bad governance. Yeah, and it's, there are issues that destroyed and tens of thousands of people's lives. And if we can agree on that know, as a description yeah, yeah. of yeah, yeah. it, yeah. you would have thought that the organs of the state would have taken it uh, much more seriously in terms of the resources and the skills and the capabilities they, they would have applied to it. Yeah, yeah, you would, you would, absolutely. Just not and to, not, not necessarily to support Richard Boyd Barrett's analysis, but you can see why some people would be suspicious. There's been a criticism of of the organs of the state for many years that they don't take white collar crime as seriously no, as they do. No, no, the I other don't sort. agree. Yeah, I yeah. don't agree with that at all because, the, obviously, my view of it, having sat through it, is that you know they start off with a presumption that there was he'd done something wrong, and they tried to find something that he'd done wrong so they could they could convict him, and. Um, they found it very, very difficult to do so because they couldn't find a crime. And he now walks away an innocent man. But they tried to build a case, which is an entirely an improper thing to very do. Very badly. Yeah, very, very badly. It. And yeah. it was actually a terribly incompetent uh, 
uh, performance. But none of the agencies of the state, the DPP, the guards and so on, and the Office of Director Corp, stopped this happening. And it really, really shouldn't happen. And it's worried, worrying for us that it did happen. So, the, you know, the, you have to presume there was no crime. OK, the terrible things happened and it, they should. there was a requirement that everybody investigate, investigated these things. But then once you discovered that you, there was no crime there, there was no basis for, for a conviction, you have to just say, well, sorry. Like, for instance, one of the things we discovered after 2008, 2009 is there was no offence in Ireland of reckless training. You know, and it, you know, it just seems sort of terrible that, you know, this people go out and be reckless in the running of their business and have such consequences for all the rest of us. Um, but it's, if it's not a crime, it's not a crime. And that's a really important uh, civil right, human right for all of us. That, you know, you, people can't just get angry and send you off to jail, even though what you did wasn't a crime at the time you did it. It's just not. It's just not the way things work. Now you can you can then say, well, how? Why did this happen? And it seems to me that there was so much. It was just seen as such a big deal that nobody nobody did. Look, hang on, guys. We don't have a case here. Mm. You know, let's issue mm-hmm. a press release. Tell the public we're not doing this. It's not going to happen. Sean Fitzpatrick didn't do anything wrong. Nobody wanted to do that. So they let it go all the way to the criminal courts. It would collapse. They let it go and, back. To, and back where to where does that decision fall? Whose desk is that? Is that the, the DPP? Well, I would have thought so, yeah. I would have thought, you know, and, and that's my, that's my, my Tupin's worth. I'm throwing it out there. You know, what I find worrying is that the Office of the Director, Director of Corporate Enforcement didn't stop somebody in their, in their office conducting this really improper type of uh, exam of criminal inquiry. That the DPP which had oversighted these things and eventually decides that the case goes ahead or doesn't, didn't stop it, didn't notice what had gone on, didn't get alarm bells, didn't go on. And then that the Garda colleagues of, of Mr O'Connell in the office didn't maybe flag it up the line, the Garda Bureau of Fraud Investigations and so on. This isn't a proper way to conduct a criminal investigation. He'd never done it before, but they were very experienced. So it's just worrying that nobody, nobody had the bravery to say, hang on, guys, we're doing this wrong. So you know, you I know it's Sean Fitzpatrick, I know it's Anglo Irish, but nevertheless, you're not supposed to do this. So, do you think we'll see any consequences out of this in terms of the way these these uh, systems are operated in the future? Well, I don't know. It's it's an interesting one. You know, um, I mean, you know, you'll get repu- rep- reputational damage for the Office of Director of Corporate Enforcement and so on. But you know, like if you're looking at the public service and maybe most big organisations, you know, if everybody keeps their heads down and goes to work, you know, they get paid at the end of the month and they get their pensions at the end of their career if they're in the public sector. But the, the uh, you know, so what's, where, where's the advantage to step, you know, stepping out and saying, I think this is wrong, we should stop it. And then having Richard Boyd Barrett stand up in the doll and say you're some sort of capitalist lackey, you know, out there trying to, to get the to get the bankers off. You know what I mean? It's, it would have been a brave thing to stand oh, okay. up and say, we've got no case here. I accept that, that, um, that, that Sean Fitzpatrick has walked free and innocent, deemed mm. innocent by, by, yeah. by the courts of this land this week. But there is a widespread perception, and you may say it's just a perception out there, but I mean, you've worked covering this area for years, yeah. even going back to your, your, your previous uh, gig here. With mm. The perception being that the Irish state uh, is it's it's uh, the tools at its disposal for the prosecution of white collar crime are inferior to what, for example, you would find in the United Kingdom, uh, and certainly to what you'd find yes. in the United States. Yeah, and I think that's fair. That's fair enough. But you know, you can't just transfer that. You can't take that thesis and then say, therefore, your man would sure. have been found Absolutely. guilty. You know, in other circumstances, mm. I think it's a really good idea to have these commissions investigate white collar crime and, and corruption, um, where you have 
platform for young, ambitious, really well-educated people. They, they do this sort of thing in the US. You can build your name, build your career early on by going out and, and pursuing these high-profile people. The kind of young people who would, you know, go in there and spend night and noon, uh, night and day, trying to get a case across the line, that sort of thing. Um, and and that sort of institution, we really need it and we've needed it for years. But I must say, I've, it's a topic I've, I'm very interested in. I've spoken to academics in the United States and, you know, the frustrations over there mirror the frustrations here. White collar crime can be extremely, extremely complicated to 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 uh, convict, and they do their perp walks and so on. But a lot of those people who get perp walked end up, you know, being released at the end of the, at the end of the day. You know, so I mean, people pull their hair out over there as well. Food for thought, Colin. Thanks for joining us today. And that's it for this edition of Inside Story. Thanks to our producer, Declan Conlon. Remember, you can mail me at hlinehan at irishtimes.com or you can find me on Twitter. But until the next time, goodbye and thanks for listening. 